I, I just think this is like so indicative of how we think about healing within capitalism, that the point of healing often becomes to do well at work or to make more money. There's this way that healing can become really just about being able to function better within the system. And one of the things that I say in the book is that, you know, I really believe true healing is actually becoming empowered enough that we liberate ourselves from the system. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Laura May Northrup, a somatic psychotherapist, educator, and author. Laura has been a guest on this show before in 2020 when we discussed her amazing podcast, Inside Eyes, a one-season tour de force that focuses on people using entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. She's now the author of a new book called Radical Healership, How to Build a Values-Driven Healing Practice in a Profit-Driven World. Laura views healing work and healing practitioners in this book through a spiritual and political lens as they do battle with the forces of capitalism while attempting to heal their clients and take care of themselves all at the same time. So Laura May Northrup, your, your book is Radical Healership, How to Build a Values-Driven Practice in a Profit-Driven World. I'd love to start off the interview by asking you, why did you write this book and who is it for? Yeah, so the book is a is for practitioners of any discipline, any type of healing practitioner. I will say that I am a psychotherapist, and so I definitely offer a lot in the book that I think is oriented towards healing practitioners that work in some kind of psychological manner. But I do try to like really orient a lot of my tips around really any type of healing practitioner. So if you work in a way that's more somatic, more spiritual or energetic, um, in addition to working psychologically. And why did I write the book? That's such a good question. This, this book really, it's one of those things that I feel like I wrote because I was more answering a call rather than seeking out an opportunity to, to do it. So throughout my career as a psychotherapist, I've really been asked many times to kind of step into a position where I'm supporting people and building their practices. And eventually I just kind of started to go with it and be like, okay, I'm getting asked this a lot. And then I, very randomly, a, a publisher reached out to me and asked me to write this book. While it wasn't something that I was sort of out there like seeking a publisher for, it just kind of felt like, all right, this is what you're getting asked to do. And then in terms of sort of what was brewing inside of me that made me say, yes, I definitely want to do this is um, just a a real longing for there to be more people who are healing practitioners, first of all, because I, I think if we're going to live in a more just world, we need more people to heal. And so we need more people to hold that healing. And then also just a drive to support people to think about healing from a political lens. Uh, when I say that, like really understanding and, and maybe not even just understanding, but being able to ask big questions around what it means to practice healing work in the system of capitalism. I'd love for you to just talk about the system of capitalism. How, how does it thrive on us being unwell? Yeah. I mean, I think it thrives on us being unwell because when we're not well, we don't, we're not empowered. And when we're not empowered, we can't really push back against people who do have power and advocate for ourselves. And sometimes when we get kind of myopic about that thinking, you know, like you think, oh, okay, what can one individual person do? One individual traumatized person, is their individual trauma really affecting their ability to, to sort of change the world or, or advocate for them, themselves? And um, it can kind of be hard to see when you look super, super close in. But when you zoom out and you think about things like 
sexual violence as a global epidemic or racialized violence as a global epidemic, you start to see a like large swaths of people, uh, oftentimes in an oppressed role in, in society, being traumatized from that oppression and then unable to to advocate or, you know, I mean, people obviously do do lots of political work and lots of advocating, but it just takes such a huge toll on that power, that ability to act as a collective unit when we're just busy coping with illness, whether that's emotional, spiritual, or physical. So I think that's one of the reasons that capitalism thrives on us not being well. And then also embedded within capitalism, oh my gosh, there's just so, I'm like, I could say this from so many different angles, but there's just so much about not liking yourself. And then from there being uh, driven to purchase things that are supposed to make you like yourself more, but of course they never do, that then feeds a capitalist system. There's so many things that we sort of spend money on that are about either spend money on or or even just the act of accruing money and hanging on to it and not spending it, where we're just we're trying to solve emotional issues or spiritual issues and they don't really get solved. But that whole system really feeds capitalist thinking, both consumerism and the hoarding of wealth. Yeah. You put forth this idea in your book that capitalism distorts healing into a commodified experience that isn't really about true healing, but rather it's this type of healing that's less threatening to existing power structures. I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that. So in the US, there is a big manual called the DSM where mental health disorders, and putting that in air quotes, are listed out and there's all these qualifying criteria for it. So it'll be like, tearful and depressed for at least six months, you know, and these will you, if you meet these criteria, then you can get the diagnosis like major depressive disorder. And one of the criteria that's in a lot of mental health disorder diagnoses is when the way that you're feeling affects your ability to go to work or it affects your performance at work. And it's such an interesting undertone to how we think about mental health because so much of what is sort of expressed in that is that your wellness is measured on whether or not you can go to a job where for a lot of people, they're doing something 40 hours a week, maybe even more that is not actually that great for them. It might be physically painful. It might be emotionally taxing. And then you not wanting to do that is used as a criteria to say that you're mentally unwell. And I, I just think this is like, so indicative of how we think about healing within capitalism that the point of healing often becomes to do well at work or people will sort of have this idea that the point of healing is to make more money like you aren't successful and i mean in a sense that you know you could even say that about my book that i'm basically saying like you have to heal yourself to be able to run a successful practice however my version of successful is not just like making a bunch of money uh, it's also being like emotionally and spiritually fulfilled but yeah, there's this way that healing can become really just about being able to function better within the system. And one of the things that I say in the book is that, you know, I really believe true healing is actually becoming empowered enough that we liberate ourselves from the system. And I say that because I do not think capitalism is a system that is good for people. It involves exploitation. And so by participating in it and sort of like trying to make yourself better so that you can, I don't know, exploit more people or engage in a system of exploitation, it just it doesn't fall into a category for me of what true healing is. 
And, and of course, the the last time that I had you on this show, we were focusing on Inside Eyes, which is a podcast that you did about psychedelic healing from the past trauma of sexual misconduct. Yeah. It's curious because in the, in the last year, probably in between the time that we recorded for that interview, the psychedelic world has really undergone this capitalist kind of transformation or takeover. Just wondering if you had thoughts about the the system of capitalism and how it, it is working within the context of psychedelics and psychedelic psychotherapy. Yeah. You know, it's also interesting because since we did that interview, there's also been a number of huge callouts around sexual abuse perpetrated by therapists within the psychedelic realm. So yeah, you know, I think what I'll say is I think there's this sort of shininess to the psychedelic world where people want to believe that like taking psychedelics are going to save the world or psychedelics are somehow separate from the rest of the world. And and I just, it's so humbling. It's like, no, sexual violence happens in psychedelic spaces. No, capitalism can totally absorb psychedelics and turn it into a commodity that becomes not so much about deep healing anymore and, and kind of more about, yeah, like functioning um, within capitalism. And I, and I think that's happening. And it's really complicated and nuanced. But like an example is veterans accessing psychedelic healing because so many veterans have such severe trauma. And while I really support that type of research and I really support veterans getting that, you know, there's this sort of larger conversation that's like, well, is the US government interested in veterans getting psychedelic healing because the US government is actually caring about how veterans are treated and how traumatized they are? Or is the US government interested in veterans getting psychedelic healing because the US government wants to be able to have veterans or people in the military? be traumatized, do healing, and then get to come back out and keep functioning in the military. Right. It's a, And it's like, I don't know. I don't know. But I, in with everything, I'm just always trying to maintain some, even if it's small at times, level of hope that we will eventually transition out of capitalism. But, you know, it's a long way out. We're all just doing our little partner in our little lives. Yeah, it does feel like that. I mean, even within the context of this book, I don't feel like you posit a world that is outside of capitalism, but rather the main gist of your book is how to function better within a a system that is going to remain more or less the same. Does that feel true? It's like a both and, you know, like, yes, I'm basically in the book, you know, I'm like, look, you you might be doing all these things to try to get yourself out of capitalism. Like one really big one is uh, one of the reasons a lot of people want to accrue wealth is because they don't want to experience the exploitation of living in capitalism. And I have so much compassion for that. Yes, of course, if there was a, if you're playing a game and, you know, if you're losing in the game, it equals like living through abuse, like societal abuse and not having your reason, like enough resources, I can understand why you want to win at the game, you know? And then there can also be, especially with a lot of healing practitioners, an orientation around trying to sort of escape capitalism by pushing away the need to be financially stable. And that often underlies healing practitioners not charging enough for their services or not really having boundaries around their services. Like, okay, you go and you do your healing practice all week, but then you know, maybe your community needs help and you just have no limits with them because you really, really want people to have access to that. And you're trying to push against the sort of idea that all your time is equated with money, but then you're burning out. So the book is just kind of like, look, here's what we actually live in. And we can't escape capitalism through treating ourselves poorly or treating other people poorly. 
I do really truly have hope that we are going to transition out of capitalism someday. I don't think we're going to see it in my lifetime, but I think in the meantime, like my my thing is like, but how can we be as well as possible and support support people as well as possible while we're in this system? Right. Yeah. And and it's interesting when there's a system that is sort of predicated around producing and reproducing shame and self-distaste. You're not going to be an ideal machine if your every movement is predicated by this overreaching feeling of, of shame. I'd love to hear you talk about this role of shame and limiting how much practitioners can really offer themselves in their services. Yeah. Well, so early on in the book, I talk a lot about just like shame being something that I think a lot of people struggle with in terms of even getting on the path. I think shame can make people decide to wait 20 years to actually step into what they want to do. You know, in the book, I talk about my own personal process of feeling um, kind of too ashamed to to say I wanted to become a therapist. This is a like common thing people say about early therapists. Like someone will say, I want to become a therapist or they'll enroll in school to become a therapist. And people in their community will say things like, oh, that person can't be a therapist, you know? And that's sometimes, you know, it is true that people are not well suited to do that work. But a lot of times uh, what's happening is that people need to do a lot of healing work personally in order to be practitioners. And that's something that I also really try to stress in the book. And that I want to stress to anyone listening that it's not always about who you are the moment you decide to do the, to become a healing practitioner. It's about how far you think you can go in your own healing. So if you know that you want to become a therapist or become an acupuncturist or become a tarot reader or whatever it is that you want to do, but you also know that like, you know, you're not there yet. Like the emotionally, psychologically, you need to do some healing work. Even starting to do that work is getting on the path. It's it's the first step in in the commitment. And it's and I talk a lot about why it is so important to do your own healing work and also about sort of the negative things that can happen in your practice and the way that you can misuse the people you work with if you're not doing your own healing work. So this is all, like these this is my solution to the shame, but a lot of times what people what happens is people just get so ashamed that they just don't do anything and they stay in jobs that they feel, you know, kind of like this is this is all I'm allowed to do because this is all I'm good at. And yeah, shame can just make us feel really small and it can make us feel like I can't actually change. And then, you know, deeper into the book, I talk more about ch- charging enough for your services. What if other practitioners, you know, don't approve of you? I mean, there's just like so many ways shame can sort of seep in and make us contract rather than kind of stepping more into like, well, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what I'm going to offer. And it's just a really, it's a, it's a, when shame becomes, you know, sometimes it's important to feel shame, but when shame becomes kind of like toxified and overarching, it can just really be something that makes us contract so much that, you know, you wake up in 10 years and you're like, what have I been doing? I've been, I've been playing it small. So yeah. So I talk a lot in the book about the importance of like breaking through that. Part of what you write about is self-love and using community as a tool to combat shame. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, so much about shame is about not loving oneself. Shame is an emotion that we often feel in association with not being included in a group and human beings we live and survive in packs and in in groups. And so to feel that you are not going to be included in a group, first of all, there's the emotion of shame, which then a lot of times what happens is that it inspires us to start uh, adhering to group norms in order to stay in the group, which is a survival issue. 
And it can also, you know, in, in ways that can also mean that you're self-limiting. I think it can both be positive to sort of like, hey, you know, like, for example, nobody in this group wants you to be violent with anyone else. Like, okay, great. Like stopping violence so you can stay in the group. But you know, with culture and stuff, it can also be like, hey, you're a queer person and therefore the people in this group don't want you to be queer. And it's like, okay, well, it's not actually positive and adaptive then to be like, okay, well, I'm just going to completely deny myself. So a big part of overcoming shame is being accepted into a group and being um, included. And I think in a lot of ways that's about sort of being loved by your community, but also loving yourself. And I'll just also add in, so this, this piece, if you think about it from an evolution lens, you know, to not belong in the group, it feels terrifying because it could mean death. And so a lot of times what happens when people feel ashamed is that they are on some very deep level associating it with death. You know, many, many people experience themselves becoming dissociated and truly immobilized when they feel a lot of shame. And in building your practice, that could mean something. I mean, it could mean that you never you never even sort of say, I want to do this work, but it could also be something like you just feel totally immobilized around making a website. Like you just won't do it. And I talk in the book about, you know, with anything like this, going really deep in and trying to understand what is happening emotionally for yourself, that you're not taking this step. And oftentimes immobilization underneath that shame, underneath that fear of death. And yeah, loving oneself, getting mobilized and really connecting to community and just not being in it alone is so healing. And it's so, um, it like breaks the shame open to where we have more choices as opposed to just kind of isolating or shutting down. One part of your book that I really enjoyed was when you talked about choosing your clients. It wasn't something that I'd particularly thought about a lot, but you write that it's much like choosing friends or other relationships in your life. What do you mean when you reference terms like healing chemistry? Yeah. So a lot of people started to understand what burnout is during the pandemic. For anyone who doesn't have a sense of that, um, what I will say is it seems really abstract. Like, oh, you burn out. What's that? I will, I wish we used other language to talk about it because what burning out is, is like hitting a point where you are so overwhelmed by what you're doing that you can barely go to work and you're not actually helping anybody because you're just so overwhelmed, like listening to people or you know whatever the, the thing is that you do in your healing practice. So working backwards from getting that overwhelmed, I think it's really helpful to build a practice that is truly the kind of practice that you, A, like are driven and want to be working like the way you want to be working, but also be something that is actually suited to who you are. So if you're, for example, a person like I am this person, I can't really think as well at night. Many therapists work at night because they see people who go to work during the day. I had to build a practice where I see people only during the day because I just actually don't do that good of work at night, regardless of even if that's what I wanted to do. So this, you know, when we kind of boil it down and get down to sort of the the basics of what a practice is, one of these things is, are the people who you're working with people who are actually a really good fit for you? So healing chemistry is basically like, you know, the same that you would meet anyone in the world and like a colleague that you collaborate, maybe you're doing a retreat with someone. There are going to be people where you have a certain chemistry with them. You just kind of flow. Your ideas are awesome together, you know, where one of you sort of drops off, the other person picks it up. And 
there can be dynamics like that in healing relationships where it's just really well suited. You really get the person you're working with and they really show up in a way that inspires you to do your best work. I think it is reasonable to aim to have a practice that's almost entirely like really good fit people. But I will say if that doesn't happen, what we want to aim for is just not having an entire practice of working in a way that is a a bad fit for you, because that's where you start to burn out. Like if every person that you're working with is triggering you because they remind you, I don't know, of somebody in your life that's harmed you, or they just like bring up things in you that you haven't necessarily worked through yet. Yeah. Or just like temperamentally, it's not a good match. That's pretty exhausting to work like that all the time. And it doesn't mean that when we sort of say to somebody like, Hey, I don't think it's going to work that we're saying there's something wrong with them. In fact, I would say whenever I am like, Hey, it's not going to work. I want to help someone actually find other people they can work with. You're actually really giving that person a gift. You're like, Hey, like be free and go find the practitioner that's right for you. Because I actually know that I can't help you or that I can't help you as well as someone else could. But what happens if you think you have healing chemistry with the client enough to, to bring them on. And then when you kind of are engaging within the work, you realize that this relationship for whatever reason is draining you. I think I would answer this question differently based on the type of healing work, you know, with therapy, I would say to people, it's okay to communicate to a new person in your practice that you're going to take multiple sessions to sort of discern together, whether it's a good fit. And you might even say like, you know, let's take three or four sessions to really discern. I think over time uh, for therapists, you get better and better at discerning that quicker and quicker. But I also think communicating to the person up front, like, hey, this is this is the kind of time span we're looking at for discerning whether we're going to work together is a good way to, so that the, uh, the, the client doesn't feel like, whoa, you're coming out of left field. We're at session four and you're saying it's not a good fit. And then the other thing I'll say is, you know, once you're really deep in uh, therapy, if it suddenly starts to feel hard, there's probably something clinically relevant there. It's not the case that we, like it's the second that the therapy feels difficult that we're like, okay, this is draining. Like sometimes your job is draining. But at that point, I might seek out consultation if I was confused. Like, why is this feeling so draining? Mm. What is the what what is like energetically and psychologically and unconsciously is probably the key word there happening between us that I feel exhausted by this relationship. And in in a therapy relationship, you bring, I mean, I work relationally, so I would bring that back in. Like maybe what's happening is that I can feel that there's something that we're not talking about. And I'm very slowly and subtly being drained because I'm like tapping into a level of dissociation that needs to get addressed. You know, I would say like, I can't speak for every type of healing practice, but if something was just turning out that it truly was a bad fit, I would be talking about it really openly. Like, Hey, you know, it, it would be something that would be noticeable. Like, Hey, you come into therapy and you seem really distressed and upset about you know, what I'm offering you. Let's, let's walk, walk through this. Let's think through it. I mean, in therapy, you're in a relationship, so you can actually talk about what's happening and discern together. You know, a lot of times it's like the, the person you're working with is also there experiencing that it's not a good fit and, and might actually just need some room to talk about it. And sometimes that can help to, to make it a good fit again. And other times that means that somebody might be like, yeah, like I thought I wanted to work somatically and actually I really don't. And so like, let's, let's end this therapy. And it doesn't have to be a, like, I'm just going to suddenly kind of roll in and end this. You know, you said something kind of interesting. You said that in therapy, you're in a relationship. Does that feel 
at, uh, in its most basic terms at odds with the capitalist project for people to be in relation? It is really complicated. Yeah. Because you're in a relationship that has a financial boundary around it, you know, and also you're in a relationship that has like, I, in some utopian world, I wish that the way healing worked is that we lived in smaller communities and the people who are healing practitioners were in ongoing relationship throughout their lives to the people who they're supporting to heal. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world with tons of people. People are moving around all the time. I have this issue in my practice where, you know, I'm only licensed to practice in California. So if I'm working with somebody, even if I've been working with them for a long time and they move to another state, I cannot keep working with them. And that might not be actually what needs to happen for their healing. It's just what has to happen legally. You know, cap- capitalism makes <laughs> capitalism, the government, like, I mean, I'm sort of equating the two, but like the the powers that be sometimes means, yeah. Or like, for example, let's say somebody loses their job and they need to go down to a very reduced fee, but let's say the healing practitioner is in a place where they can't lose that income and they can't take on more people. This is the toxic, sick part of capitalism is just like, you know, you're in this really powerful relationship. And obviously when things like this happen with therapists, we try to work to make these transitions in and out of therapy as easeful as possible as healing. Like, I mean, even the end of therapy can be a healing process. And and also even when somebody's just done with their therapy, it's like, okay, well, you have this really beautiful relationship with this, this healing practitioner but you can't keep it because it's not like, oh, we're in community. So I'll see you at the grocery store. I'll see you at whatever. I'll see you at other, you know, out at events. We we keep these like really, really strict boundaries. And it, and there's reasons for that too. I'm also not trying to say that I support boundaryless connection after a therapy has ended. You know, another thing I talk about publicly uh, a lot is um, uh, therapists sexually abusing and engaging in unethical conduct with their clients and former clients. So I, I really support these boundaries, but I definitely think capitalism makes them tricky. And it's like not pro-relationship sometimes. Hmm. Sometimes it's you know, you're working within the systems that you can, like in the way you can to try to make it okay. And and we don't always have the power as individual clinicians to make something work. Let's talk a bit about burnout. As you mentioned a bit earlier, just the reality of how much this work taxes the people who do it. Let's talk about how healers can best take care of themselves. Yeah. Well, so I think I'll, I'll say too, on this piece, you know, there's this sort of adherence to what I call kind of like an all giving mother archetype that a lot of healing practitioners fall into where we can feel really attached to having no limits and kind of like I'm here and I'm warm and empathetic and I'm I'm always good. And sometimes when people merge with that, it can be really hard to say no. Um, And that can turn into things like someone calls you up or emails you and wants to work with you and you actually don't have space, but you take them on anyway. That can be seen in undercharging. And this work is really difficult. And I think that a lot of people underestimate that. They underestimate how much it's taking out of them. I know for myself, you know, if I get just a little bit checked out of my body, I can just go on this autopilot place where I'm not registering how much everything's affecting me. It's actually just a lot. And, you know, I work with severe trauma and and many people do. And as a lot of us are coming to kind of realize and acknowledge in the world, even if you don't say you work with severe trauma, you probably are working with some of it. Even if you are, let's say, uh, a healing practitioner that works in a medical realm, 
you might not say like, yeah, I work with people with trauma, but you know, so many people who have different like illnesses and, and physical issues are being traumatized from that. And then also so many people are just coming into medical arenas with their own emotional trauma that, that plays out there. So we're just holding a lot. It's actually just very, very difficult work. And one thing I'll say, you know, I think for people who are kind of earlier on in their careers, it can be really challenging and even kind of sad to realize how much your life is going to be affected by being on this path. Just as like an example, like I can't, I can't like decide to just not get enough sleep one night or like drink too much or like party and, you know, like kind of be a little wrecked or I can't have like really emotionally taxing relationships in my personal life. I mean, certainly there can still be emotionally taxing things happening, but there's a level of care that you have to take of yourself that is beyond anything that I ever did prior to becoming a therapist. And it's, it's, it's a lot. You, you, it's really a path. You know, when I think about it, I talk about in the book, like comparing yourself to an athlete. And that's, I, I use that example because I think it's like more sort of widely understood. You know, an athlete, when they're like, they, when they're not training or they're not sort of doing their performing, maybe it's off season, they're not like becoming, doing something that's just like, completely going to destroy their career and uh, and be unable to physically perform. Like they need to take really good care of themselves in order to maintain that level of stamina because they're using their bodies. And what I think a lot of people sort of start to realize as they as they practice any of the healing arts is that you're using your body too and your mind and you need to keep it like in shape. Like it needs to be really really well taken care of. And yes, you can take a vacation. Yes, you can like you know, maybe, maybe slide some of the time with how you take care of yourself, but overall, oh my God, it's beyond like, I just, sometimes people say the word self-care and I just like want to run the other way. Um, and not because I don't think it's like a totally beautiful idea, but just like, sometimes it's just exhausting to take care of yourself this much. Well, one thing I did like about your book is that you offer some concrete work and, and tips that can lead to folks taking care of themselves better can you talk to me about in- intention setting and what you call the cosmic pizza order? Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I think intentions are like, if you don't ha- if you don't consciously have an intention, you still have one. It's just unconscious and it's running your life. So um, it's good to do a little work to kind of understand what you're unconsciously sort of orienting around as your highest intention. Usually it's some type of wounding if we're, if we're doing it unconsciously. So I talk a bit in the book about having a spiritual practice. One thing I'll say about that is that I'm really inviting spiritual practice as opposed to encouraging like uh, adhering to a religion. And I like to say that because I know a lot of people have uh, religious trauma and and if you are if you are practicing in a specific religion, I think you can use your religious experience and faith in service of the work that you do. But if you're not, or if you're really opposed to that, I just want to really highlight there's a way to be a spiritual person without adhering to a religion. And I try to just, all my sort of spiritual tips are are in that, like you can apply it to, it, it's, if it's a one size fits all, you can put it in wherever it makes sense to you. Right. So, you know, there's this idea that people talk about of manifesting and sometimes manifesting can be sort of construed as like, if I just like pray or hope or write it down, you know, I'll get what I want out of life. And 
I'm really into manifesting, but I'm not into adhering. Like that's not the sort of um, definition of it that I use. I think it's like an intention setting tool. That's also about devoting yourself to an intention and really honing in on it. So the cosmic pizza order is this idea that you write down everything that you're hoping to have in your practice, or if you're, you know, you can use it for a tiny part of your practice or for your whole practice and that you're writing it down in great detail, you know, just the way that you'd order a pizza. You're like, okay, I want pineapple on half of it, you know, pepperoni on the other half or whatever. You're writing it down as though it's all already happened. And you're also uh, including in that, like what you're going to offer and how it's going to feel and everything. And then you're using it in a spiritual way. So you're sitting with it, you're reading it to yourself. And through that process of reading something back to yourself and sitting with it over time, like let's say that you write out your cosmic pizza order and you sit with it for the next two months, it's a process that helps you discern as you keep revisiting this idea or this sort of plan that you've made for yourself, you get to discern like, am I still really dedicated to this? Is this exactly what my intention is? Does each part of this feel in integrity for me? And that that is a part of manifesting what it is that you want in the world. So that's one of the ways that I use a tool like that, that I think can be also really helpful with the burnout piece because your cosmic pizza order, like definitely make sure to put on there everything that you really want that's going to help you thrive. And I think that that can become clear, as I said, like if you're going over time and and you're looking, you're reading it back to yourself, you might suddenly start to feel like, wait a minute, this cosmic pizza order that I wrote out is actually going to be way too much work for me. This is, I mean, I'm experienced this all the time where I have way too many projects. And when I really start to sit with them and, and, you know, do spiritual work around them, I, I start to come to like, oh, I actually can't write three books next year. Like, which one will I do? <laughs> and, and to just kind of manifest it, like I write three books and they're great. Like, it's like, you know, I, I like to, I'm very practical. So I like to take these spiritual ideas and while they are very, very magical, I also just like to to distill them down to like, there's a practicality to, to them as well. At the end of your book and part of the acknowledgements section, you acknowledge and thank plant medicines that you work with. And I'm wondering if you would be open to like talking about the process of doing spiritual work around intentions that you've set. I find that really interesting. I love Sam that you read the acknowledgements and and picked up on that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the first thing I think, I mean, truly like plant medicines helped me write the book. Yeah. So I love psychedelics and entheogens. I think they're really powerful healing tools. I'll also say that there's a lot of hype around them and anyone listening, like I really encourage you if that's not something that you're already engaged in, or maybe even if it is to be very mindful about the potential harms of using psychedelics and entheogens and just uh, truly something that I is not for everybody. And I would say if you go down that route, just like deep, deep care and mindfulness around it. So, so yeah, I'll say that I'm not, I'm not, this is not like advice or consultation to tell anyone to do this. So speaking from my own personal experience, I had many moments in writing the book where I would come to just uh, like maybe a chapter where I would be like, I don't know what to say here, or I, I've, I have said something, but I, I can't like I can't find the most core truth. Mm. There's something blocking it and I'm like not quite there. And so I did a lot of journeys around the book. And honestly, what that looked like, this is hilarious, is me like with my cell phone, with a little recorder on, Mm -hmm. just really (laughs) 
Yeah. Really in another state of consciousness, writing book chapters by, by talking them out. Um, and then later listening to them and just being like, wow, okay, this is very raw. My behavior and my language is raw as hell. Uh, and, uh, you, and then you writing it. the work that you, yeah, I would transcribe what I had said and then kind of like start to turn it into a chapter or start to alter a chapter it already written. Yeah. So that was a big, um, a big thing for me. And, you know, like I'm always just trying to get to the deepest truth I can sometimes there's stuff in the way and, you know, like, I mean, just, I can very vulnerably say I had to do a lot of healing work to write this book. Like I, you know, I feel like people in my life are like, you're so confident. Oh my God. You just, everything you do, you're just like putting stuff out there all the time. And I'm like, it's so painful to write a book. (laughs) It's actually like going through a pretty wild threshold and it's not actually that comfortable. Mm. And so, yeah, like, you know, I use psychedelics and entheogens to heal in that process. And I also use them sometimes to just sort of be like, what's the, what's the block with this chapter? And then, you know, oftentimes what would happen is I would journey into a place where I would be processing my own. I would realize like, oh, here's why you're afraid to write this, or here's why you're struggling to think when this topic comes up in the book, it's your own wounding societal or childhood. And then I would do some healing work around that and come into a place of like, now from there, now you can answer this question. Now you have access to this deeper truth, or now you even just have the confidence to say what you need to say. Well, there's a deep personal revelation in probably, I think the first or second chapter where you write about your relationship with your father and how, when he died, uh, there was deep grief there partially i think because there's there won't be any room to ch- change the relationship going into that in the beginning of the book felt like a brave and useful step yeah yes yeah and i mean i don't want to give away too much for people because i feel like there's there's a lot of um i talk i talk a bit as well about my therapist dying at the same time as my dad and and i have a whole kind of uh, piece in there around just what it means to be a healing practitioner. But yeah, you know, that was a, that was a big transformative experience for me to have my dad die when I was in my twenties. Yeah. Like when people die, you can do healing work still, you know, but it's not the same. It's not the same as there's a finality to it of like, that's what the relationship was while, while both of us were alive. Hmm. Yeah. No, towards the end of your book, you encourage readers to write a history of their own experience with class. Yeah in order to explore how that impacts their own sense of self and how they engage with the world. Laura, why, why is this so crucial? Class is very related to capitalism and, and related to what it means to run a business. But I also think it's really crucial because class is one of the forms of sort of power, privilege, and oppression that we, I think, just all I can say in the U.S. anyway, I, we really struggle to have the language to talk about it. I mean, it's kind of blows my mind how um, many types of oppression and privilege we are growing the capacity to talk about and and yet still really, really struggle with class. There's a lot of shame on both ends of the spectrum. You know, I mean, I, I think there's very few people who did not experience some kind of shame about either how much money they had or how little they had. So when it comes to running a business where you charge money for your services, it's just really important to be able to get real about your relationship to money. And then I also think like, it's just important for you and anyone you work with to just be working on that piece because it's something that we are, none of us is spared. 
And I really say that, like, I, I, you know, I think sometimes people think like, oh, well, rich people don't have any issues with money. Um, okay. No, <laughs> like <laughs> rich people have so many issues with money and, and really need support and really need to heal as well as people who have lived through poverty. Even, you know, even, I think it's probably, there's an idea, idea if you're in the middle class that you don't, you know, you're fine. It's like, we're all just so wounded around this terrible class system. And so I think it's important just for anyone's general healing, but yeah, like if you're going to be charging money, you've, you've got to, you've got to, it's so much more than just like, like, like class issues are, can be seen in like, they're so insidious and they touch everything. If you grew up in an environment where there were not healing practitioners, like I didn't grow up with therapists around me or doctors around me. I mean, unless I went to a doctor in the like class experience I had, it was not normal to go see a therapist. And so of course, like stepping into that role, it's like, am I leaving my people behind? Am I still going to belong? Do I now associate with these other people, these therapist people, this professional class of people? Like all of that can come up when you're building your website and kind of saying like, here's my services. Um, Yeah. So I just, I think it's like a critical thing to look at. And in my experience of you know, part of what's going into the book is that I have supported a lot of people in building their practices. Um, and this is just something that's so, so deep and something a lot of people just neglect to look at because it's just not normalized conversation in the type of world that we live in. Mm-hmm. So Laura, you've, you've built a thriving practice. You created a podcast inside eyes, as we spoke about that focuses on healing from sexual trauma with entheogens. And you've written this book, Radical Healership, which kind of talks about how to thrive healthfully within what is possibly defined as an unhealthful system, that of capitalism. I'm, I'm curious about your next move in terms of defining the, the work that you'll be doing for your career moving forward. Oh my gosh. I am curious too. <laughs> it's a, well, like I said, I have like five different projects I want to start. I'm still wanting to do a season two of my podcast. I'm, I am the pandemic really took it out of me. And, and that's sort of one of the things that fell to the wayside. Um, but I hope to sort of sort out that and, um, and find my way with it. And then I'm thinking about writing another book and I am not sure. I mean, I know what I'm going to write it about, but um, I'm not sure if that's something that's going to happen now. That's something that's going to happen in five years. And, you know, I'm also like being a person who kind of like does a lot, which is a total capitalist thing. Like I am, I, that's a, you know, I just want to say that too. People are like, capitalism makes you feel bad if you don't do things. And then it's like, I'm like, don't think because I wrote this book that I'm not suffering from that. But uh, I am also debating, like, do I have to write another book? Like what happens if I just don't actually do any other big project. But I think probably the next things are going to be writing another book. And then um, I'm hoping to do some uh, in 2023 to start doing more retreats. Um, And I'd like to do retreats for healing practitioners and also for uh, sexual trauma survivors, which are two kind of like populations of people I really enjoy enjoy supporting. Mm, That's beautiful. Laura May Northrup, your book is Radical Healership. Where can readers find this? Buy it from your local bookstore. If you don't have a local bookstore, you can find it online. The publisher is North Atlantic Books. They have it for sale. You know, I'm just trying to encourage people not to support like buying it off Jeff Bezos' website, but um, uh, it's it's basically everywhere online if you Google it. That's great. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Sam. It's so lovely. 
Thanks for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Until next time, be well.